0: Welcome to Industry Focus,
1: the podcast
0: that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day.
1: I'm your host, Emily Flippin.
0: I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials.
1: Today we're talking consumer goods.
0: Wildcard Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in.
1: Welcome to Industry Focus. Today is Tuesday, May 4th, and I'm the host of this Consumer Goods episode, Emily Flippin. Today, I'm joined by Motley Fool analyst, Asit Sharma, as we take a look at Oatly's F1. Asit, thanks for joining.
0: Emily, thank you for having me. So this is something I've been looking forward to because I have a little bit of experience with the product and I think you have a lot.
1: I'm not sure if I'd say I have a lot. Uh, I will say I have a very narrow range of experience with Oatly's oat milk, in particular, their chocolate oat milk. I- I'm not sure if anybody listening is a big fan, but I have been through many an alternative milk chocolate milk in my day and age. And Oatly, in my opinion, is by far the best. So when I'd seen that they had filed their F1 to go public, I was very excited, just selfishly knowing that I was a fan of their chocolate oat milk.
0: Yeah, that's as good a reason as any. And sometimes we notice that the products that we sort of um take a shine to can make really, really good investments. Now, whether this is a good investment or not, I think we'll probably have to find out over the next 30-odd uh, minutes or so.
1: Well, I'm clearly not an <laughs> unbiased party here. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm going to try to hide my opinion, as I sometimes do till the end. But I, think I, I, I
1: love there. coming into these episodes with you blind, Asit, because I, I put my thoughts out in an outline, because otherwise I will by no means, ever remember what it is that I wanted to talk about in the show, but I love it whenever you don 't put your notes in the outline, uh mostly just because I have no clue what you 're going to say, and that mystery just keeps me on the edge of my seat.
0: Well, one of these days, uh if we ever record on an April Fool's, I will have to do that, so the way this works is um as you all might guess, Emily is very, very good and organized and energetic. And uh, oftentimes, we'll either split an outline or I'll put a lot of comments in an outline she's done once in a while, though maybe on April 1st of 2022, it'll be like this. I don't put any notes in and I will. every point Emily makes, I will contradict it and I will have these big, huge sighs when she's talking about the financials. And when she says, I like the margin on this company, you'll hear audible laughter. I'm waiting for that. You just gave me a great idea. Maybe I've just given away the joke, though. But uh, yeah, we'll see as we go along.
1: <laughs> You're going to make me an extremely insecure host because your financial <laughs> background is far superior to that of my own. So uh, the uh, moment I, I, um, I'm always already nervous whenever I talk about finances in front of you because I'm like, oh, is is Asit going to disagree? I mean, <laughs> it's like that would haunt my nightmares.
0: Well, uh, Emily, you'll soon, I'm sure, have your CFA to hang by your name. So then, the the tables will flip, and then I will be really, really watching everything. I oh well, I hope you're numbers.
1: knocking on wood right now, Asit. <laughs>
0: I'm I'm knocking on wood, and in keeping with a long-standing uh, for the last two year's obsession with all things Turkish that I have, although I'm not Turkish myself, I don't have the time to explain the story. I'm also tugging at my ear <laughs> for you to wish you uh, good luck on on any future sections. All right, thank you. I think we're ready.
1: <laughs> Okay. Well, I guess at some point we should probably talk about this business. For anybody who's not familiar, Oatly is the largest oat milk company in the world. And while that's always fun to say, I I will mention, it's not like there's a ton of oat milk companies in the world, but there's certainly more today than there were even five or 10 years ago. In addition to oat milk, Oatly also sells ice cream, yogurt, cooking cream, spreads, ready-made drink, all of these things uh, formulated from their proprietary process of extruding oats into liquid, which doesn't sound very appetizing, but consumers think it tastes pretty good.
0: Yeah. This is a company that reminds me of some others uh, in the space that have come along, um, such as Fairlife Milk the A2 Milk Company. These are all various takes from different angles um, on a big problem in the world, which is lactose intolerance. So interesting in that and, and also interesting as we'll get into Emily that this is not um, a US-based company like A2 Milk, which I think is either Australia or New Zealand. This is was formed way outside the borders of the US. So we get to see it from the perspective of a company that in this case grew in Europe and Landed in the U.S. and and we can sort of watch its market evolve in real time here.
1: Yeah, this company, to many surprise, has actually been around since the 1990s. It was founded by two food scientists in Sweden who wanted to just make better milk, both for people who are lactose intolerant as well as people who needed stuff like fiber and. It wasn't an easy ride. I encourage anybody who's interested to kind of dig up some of the interesting stories behind Oatly. They had a lot of legal fights with traditional dairy companies, uh, most of whom were better capitalized than Oatly over the controversies of, of what is milk and should consumers be drinking cow's milk or oat milk? <laughs> And it's, it's, and it's an interesting story, but this is all to say that while Oatly was growing since the 1990s, there really has been an undeniable trend, especially in Europe and especially in Oatly's home country of Sweden of decreasing milk consumption and increasing alternative beverage consumption. And that's a trend that we've seen continue across most markets that have readily available milk alternatives.
0: Yeah, the thing I wanted to stress here is those is that phrase "most markets" because this isn't, and we shouldn't paint it as simply, a European or U.S. phenomenon. This is a global phenomenon in both developed and emerging economies. People are second guessing uh, that cow's milk should be a primary source of milk. Um, so, as we work through this business proposition, I'm going to try to keep in mind that it's it's a much bigger opportunity than just the U.S. Um, or Europe, where I think there's, there's are its two biggest markets so far.
1: One of the things that I love about this business that I think is going to surprise a lot of listeners is, is that international aspect. And While Oatly sells in more than 20 markets across the world, dozens of different products, they actually have a pretty big market in China of all places. They've been selling there since 2018. They have nearly 10,000 locations that are selling Oatly products there. It's a challenging and really unique market to penetrate. And I think it's really impressive that Oatly, being a relatively small business, was able to partner with Alibaba, a much bigger business, obviously, in China, which has led to a huge rapid expansion of its market share in China. So as we're talking about these businesses, while there is a lot of focus on Sweden and the EU and the U.S., uh, we can't leave out the China story because China, plus a lot of other developing economies that prefer milk alternatives, especially if they have a largely lactose intolerant population, these are untapped and exciting markets for Oatly to try to penetrate in the future.
0: Yeah, it's so interesting. I think that this shows some of the acumen of Tony Peterson, the CEO, um, who was brought in after the original founders grew the company to a state where they they needed um, another and pair of hands to, to really steer it forward this is something i mentioned the a2 life company uh which also is uh closer to the chinese market physically uh than most companies they have a really big investment in china china has across you know and emily you've lived there so for me this is uh really reading about the country but i think you've probably seen this as well They have such a young population, and milk as a nutrient is such a huge emphasis there. So, it's a massive market with massive potential. And this go to market strategy um, that since 2018 they would have hit this many locations in such a short time, I think is really telling about the company. If you're looking at this F1, Um, so like an S1, (laughs) so. you have to file your statement, your prospectus with the Securities and Exchange Commission. If you're a foreign issuer, then you often are required to to file an F-1 instead of an S-1, which is what U.S.-based companies will file. But I think the F-1 reflects the potential of the massive global market, and China is such a great example, Emily.
1: and Oatly has a really unique process of entering new markets. I, I like the fact that it's simple direct and effective. Their go-to-market strategy is really just to first target specialty food service, in particular, coffee shops. So whenever they're interested in entering a new market, whether it be an entirely new country or maybe just an expanded geography of a country in which they already exist, they first go to, say, your local mom-and-pop coffee shop. And they say, hey, are you interested in adding oat milk to your menu? And they convince all of these more niche uh, As food service locations to stock and carry Oatly. And then once they have Oatly in those locations and people are consuming the product, they become familiar with the brand and they're able to build up brand awareness, build up brand loyalty. And then they hit the larger shops and then lastly hit retail shelves. So if you've only recently started to see Oatly products, if you're a US listener in particular, if you only recently started to see Oatly products on your shelf in retail stores, you're actually really far past the wave of Oatly in the U.S. because they first tackled specialty coffee shops and then more recently, shops like Starbucks, which has really made a name for itself because Oatly products, which is Starbucks oat milk offering of choice, have had issues uh, become becoming so popular just over the last year or so that they actually sold out of this oat milk nationwide. I mean, it it has truly been a
0: phenomenon. Yeah, and this is uh, something so interesting to me, Emily. When we were first kicking around this idea, I think I mentioned to you that I first heard of Oatly in relation to a very specific but important uh, geography in the U.S. When it comes to the coffee market, which was Brooklyn, and the demand that baristas in Brooklyn um, had for for this product. So, if you've seen this on the store shelves, they've got two products which. Um, Are essentially differentiated by fat content. They've got their regular brand, which uh, most people buy, and that's got a two percent, I think, fat concentration. Then they have the barista product. It says barista on it, and that has a three percent fat component to it. And this is what baristas love because with that, instead of having a lactose-based product, they can make a cappuccino or an espresso macchiato or or name your your drink. If if you're from um, South America, there there are other names for this. I want to say uh, Pingo is, is a similar type of drink, but you can get the the concentration just right, uh, the, the ratio of milk to uh, coffee with the texture you want. The Barista product is what drove people crazy, drove them bananas, they loved it so much. and I want to say that that one landing in the U.S. in uh, one borough of New York really just sparked their expansion here and, and paved the way. For them to, to follow up their strategy. And I, I was so impressed by that. And then I sort of forgot about the brand um, in terms of a potential investment, although my wife is a big fan and we have Oatly in our fridge now. I am still old school. I, I drink 2% milk, cow's milk. Um, but it really shows, in some ways, also how savvy the company is. If you've seen their branding, it's. Um, how to describe it? It's it's hip. It's, so it's aimed at a younger generation. Um, it's uh, very composed. So these are often very um, sculpted and put together shots that can recall any number of things. Let's say a hipster drinking a bit of milk. But their their branding is very much about uh, a younger generation. I would say even younger than millennials. So there is a lot to like in their marketing capability. But Emily, you have some statistics that you you wanted to share about them as we sort of work through the other parts of the business proposition here. I'll return to Brandon in just a moment.
1: Yeah, I did, mostly because when I was reading through the F1, uh, this stood out to me as particularly uh, astounding mostly because I have this very narrow mindset as somebody who lives in the United States about the demand for oat milk. I didn't quite understand how prevalent it was in the other markets for which Oatly was operating. Uh, First, for some numbers, I mentioned their expansion in China. Uh, Their sales in China were up 450% over the last year, so crazy expansion there. But they're not just growing quickly in China. Over the last year, they've grown sales 99%, 200% and 182% in the UK, Germany, and the US respectively. So huge growth rates. But when you just look at oat milk, right, those growth rates are wonderfully high numbers. But if you're moving from 1 to 20, that's very different than if you're moving from 200 to 2000. And What stood out to me was just how popular oat milk was in Sweden, the UK, and Germany in comparison to the United States. When you look at the alternative milk segment in the United States, it's by far almond milk being the most dominant player. Over 60% of all alternative milk sold is almond milk. Oat is the second at 14%, soy at only 9%. So oat is in the game, but it's by no means as prevalent as almond milk is. And my Incorrect assumption was that this same trend would play out in Sweden, the UK and Germany, right? I love almond milk. I drink it every morning. I'm, I'm horribly wrong there. 72% of the milk alternative segment in Sweden is oat milk, 42% in the UK and 60% in Germany. Oat milk has far surpassed the growth of almond and soy milk in each of these markets, and it is out far surpassing the growth in almond milk in the US which has actually contracted over the past couple of years. So, people love oat milk. I I pers- I'm still an almond milk person myself, but don't don't, you know, kind of write off the segment just because of our very American mindset of seeing almond milk all over the shelves. Oat milk is is here to stay.
0: It is, and this brings up a big picture question, which is to what extent will US consumers see oat milk as a replacement for uh, milk in coffee, which is right now a big component, versus an almond milk, which um, tends to be drunk by the glassful. Amy just, uh, Emily just said that she drinks a glass every morning. So I w- would be curious to see how this evolves over time. Part of it is marketing and convincing the consumer that oat milk itself is something that is um, healthy for you; it's good for you. And uh, I, I think that Oatly has already survived one round of, of bad press. I want to say this was 2019, early 2020, where some people were questioning the, the health of the ingredients and, and pointing out that if you drink like many glassfuls of this, you get a spike in your glycemic index. But then if you think about it, that's true for any beverage that's not water. This, this can be a result of having too many energy drinks. You could have too much caffeine in your system or too many Coca-Colas, that could also um, cause your your blood sugar to to rise. And and there's so many arguments around Beyond Meat. This is the closest analog we have here in the States, that's a well-known brand name, where there's an initial wave of enthusiasm. And then there's a little bit of brand pushback and ingredient pushback as people start to wonder, well, look, how processed is this product? So I think you're going to see some cyclical brand perception changing uh, as, as people grapple with an alternative to almond milk. But I think on the whole, I would guess if you look at the charts in the F1, which uh, Emily had conveniently provided um, to me, the trajectory, if it's anything like it was in Europe, it's oat milk's market share of the future to take away from almond milk as, as they shift the marketing a little bit away from this sort of coffee-oriented product to something that's very drinkable. And Tony Peterson, the CEO, of course, is very into that aspect of the marketing. He wants you to, to have that on your breakfast table every morning.
1: It's funny that you mentioned the kind of health pushbacks because, in my opinion, this is probably one of the key risks with oat milk as a product, especially aimed at American consumers. If you look at the trends of what percentage of oat milk sold is Oatly, In the U.S., it's significantly lower than virtually every other market that Oatly is in right now. I mentioned 14% of the milk alternative market goes to oat milk in the U.S. If you break that down to just Oatly products, it's only 4%. So they're only a nominal part of the entire oat milk industry in the U.S. at all. Now, one person may look at that and say, oh, that's a great opportunity, right? They're going to expand their market share. They don't need oat milk to become Bigger than almond milk. They can just expand their market share within the existing oatmeal segment, oat milk segment, not oatmeal. Uh, the reason why that I think is going to be challenging in the US in particular is because of the rules the FDA has around the way that we report nutrition labeling there's a weird, I wouldn't say weird. The Oatly has a proprietary and patented process of extruding oat milk. Basically, it uses enzymes to break down the oats during the production process. And this harkens back to that 1990s food scientists founders who wanted to create an oat milk that was uh, had higher retention of dietary fibers, right? That was healthier than other oat milk. Now, Retaining these dietary fibers through that enzymatic breakdown is wonderful, but it also creates a nominal amount of sugar. And that's normal, right? That's sugar that your body would have created if you had just ingested it without having those enzymes break it down beforehand. However, that has to be labeled as added sugar under the FDA's guidance in the United States. So somebody picks up a container of Chobani oat milk, which doesn't use the enzymatic enzymatic breakdown that... Oatly does, and they see no added sugar. They pick up Oatly. They see, I think it's seven or eight grams of added sugar. And they think to themselves, well, I'm going to make the healthier choice here. And they don't buy Oatly. Even though that, that nutrition labeling is a little bit misleading within itself, um, that process allows for better dietary fiber retention, but it also leads to a higher reported sugar content, despite not having added any sugar, literally added any sugar. So it's an interesting kind of conundrum that I think Oatly is up against. I don't see them changing their formula. Maybe I'm wrong, but I don't see them changing that that special proprietary formula just for the U.S. market. But that puts the onus on them to then educate consumers about, okay, what is this added sugar? Why is this added sugar not as bad for you as you may perceive just from this nutrition labeling? That's a challenge. I wonder about their ability to get market share in the U.S. as a result.
0: Yeah, it, it may take some more time. Really great explanation, and it's a, I think a consequence of enzymatic research being much bigger in Europe uh, in the food market than it is in the U.S. In fact, we're net purchasers, I believe, of um, enzymatic product from Europe. There are companies in the Netherlands that just specialize in this. Um, Germany is a big leader as well. So in Europe, it's I, I think it's no big deal for the food authorities of the European Union to label this as enzymatic, whereas in the U.S., we're still wrapping our heads around that concept. So That might be part of it. Another part of it too, uh, Emily, that I was thinking, I was trying to figure out also why this curve hasn't been faster. So When uh, Oatly first came into the market and sparked this craze, there was a run on oat milk. It was in short supply and their price point spiked. There were no other real competitors. But in a short amount of time, uh, competition came in. I think Pacific Foods, which is now owned by the Campbell Soup Company, was quick to get a product on the shelves. There's a company um, based in California called Califia, which I believe this was the beginning of 2020. They received about $225 million worth of investment in in venture capital, um, pushing them to an evaluation at that time of about $800 million. In fact, they were supposed to be the first Company to come to market with oat milk. Uh, it's surprising uh, now. O- oat- Oatly sort of leapfrogged that, but Califia actually came to market very quickly. Also, so we had some pretty big hands in the U.S. And then eventually, as you mentioned, Chobani came into the market, stabilized the prices. I wonder if there's some residual association with price that Oatly is expensive because it was when it led the market. Even though, if you go to your your grocery store shelf now and look at their um, non-barista product versus any other, the price points are, are roughly similar. I think it's um, maybe 4 four bucks for the, that uh, slim bottle, and I'm not sure if that's a quart exactly, how much the volume is of that container. I wonder if there's still some perception of price that actually doesn't exist.
1: That's a really good point. I didn't think about that. I, I bet to some extent there is. Um... Especially because of of how competitive the space has become, I wonder if there's a level of of price sensitiveness in oat milk consumers that probably isn't working in Chobani's favor. Could be. And good. I see that we already have a question as we as we tape here on Motley Fool Live. I see we have a question that um, I think kind of harkens at the market opportunity here for for oatly, which is sustainability. One of the key aspects that has worked against almond milk, has been its extreme land and water usage. It's a healthy product, but it's healthy for humans, maybe less healthy for our environment. And Oatly, while not breaking down water consumption, does claim that the production of their oat milk uses 80% less greenhouse gases 79% 79% less land usage and 60% less energy consumption than traditional milk. And moving away generally from animal-based products to alternative products has been a trend that has helped the environment. So uh, while they didn't break down all of that information about how it compares in particular to almond milk, I do think that sustainability and maybe being a little bit more environmentally conscious is certainly a key aspect when consumers are making their choices in their grocery
0: stores. Yeah. And, and it matters to a younger consumer. I'm always warning on the show, don't extrapolate from my personal experience. Don't take anecdotal evidence as anything. But still, you know, we, we always talk about it anyway. So let's consider this. Over the last two years, I've become, except for fish, I've become a pescatarian. So I haven't had a steak or a hamburger or um, any kind of chicken now. I think it's like 18 months because of our youngest who, for environmental reasons, just sort of one day just stopped cold turkey and became a vegetarian. Then he eventually um, allowed fish into his diet. So um, very interesting, though, how attuned the younger consumer is to the stats that you just mentioned, Emily. And I can so totally see those who are younger than the millennial generation choosing oat milk versus almond milk because they're so aware of the environmental impact of everything that they consume. This is sort of arguing for a long-term investment in this company. And I have one thing to tie to this which we can talk about towards the end of the show too, but I'll go ahead and mention it here. I really love that Oatly has about 90 patents globally. So what do you think about this product? It isn't just a milk product. Uh, They have a whole line of products that are in development. Some of those, like um, an an oat-based yogurt, may over time catch on more in the United States to a consumer that admittedly still doesn't really care that much. If you take the aggregate U.S. consumer, um, we're okay with with, um, the environmental impact of what we eat. We're going to make the choice first. To eat what we like versus what we think is good for the environment. As I said, that's changing with the younger generation. But counterbalancing that is, I think, a lot of product extension. I've seen that with a company I really like called Vital Farms, which started with um, pasture-raised eggs and has moved on to pasture-raised ghee, which is clarified butter made from those same eggs. And I see some potential here over the long-term. When you take this environmental advantage versus almond milk and certainly versus cow's milk. I mean, that's also a tremendous environmental advantage. Couple it with a really nice patented process that's locked up. And I think they have also in the US um, several trademarks that are already secured. You you have maybe a really long-term path for innovation here. So I'm less worried about the lack of market share um, vis-a-vis competitors when I look at this company and more curious about its potential to expand laterally with different product lines.
1: That is an interesting aspect that I, I don't think I quite focused on, mostly because 90% of Oatly sales right now are in the form of oat milk. But to your point, they do have a number of different products. I'm, I'm excited to hopefully at some point try their oat ice cream um, that sounds right up my alley, so I like the idea of them expanding horizontally uh, as well. But when you look at their financial performance, uh, it's still a relatively small business despite its global footprint. Uh, plant-based milk is a $2.5 billion industry as of 2019, so relatively large industry, although still significantly less than the $600 billion that is the global dairy industry. And despite having that $2.5 billion of opportunity right now, um, oat milk only did 3% of the sales that almond milk did within that industry. So looking at the financial performance of Oatly uh, with just over, uh, I think it's $420 million in revenue in 2020, while that was up 100%, this is still a really small and unprofitable business.
0: Sure. It's going to need a lot of scale over the years. And, and maybe there too, is a, a bit of a cautionary tale here as well. When we look at uh, A2 Milk, which I've mentioned a couple of times now, so not really advising investors to go out and find this company and, and buy it, but just as a good study that it, it takes years and years to achieve scale in this industry. And part of you know your competition isn't just um, the, the plant-based milk in this industry, but over time, it's going to be the extension of, of various alternative milks, some that are based um, on enzymes as A2 milk is. It's, it's supposedly a type of milk enzymatically which won't produce the same products as um, typical milk does from a cow, the, the kind that we is, predominates here in the U.S. market. A2 milk is now, of course, on the shelves in the U.S. I know I've mentioned this on live before and I've heard from viewers. Um, but then also looking at products like Fairlife, which is owned by Coke, and yet to come products that can um, penetrate this market. It's sort of a competitive market here for what has been a market that itself is declining. The specialty markets are all increasing, low to single, uh, low to, to mid digits. Some of them at a slightly higher rate. So specialty milks have uh, a, a faster growth rate. But overall, the the milk market in the U.S. When you include plant-based milk in that, is sort of stagnant. So that's a little bit of a cautionary tale here. But I don't want to overfocus on the U.S. because I I do think this is a global story. Emily, um, what do you think about uh, the net losses and and let's maybe tackle the gross margin? What are your thoughts on those two in in the context of future growth for the company?
1: Well, their gross profit margins just over thirty percent, which I don't think is terrible for a business of their size. I was actually impressed. While they did produce, obviously, some some hefty net losses, um, their operating losses have actually shrunk as a percentage of revenue as they've expanded. So this is a type of business where I have no doubt they'll continue to raise money to, to fund growth in the future they're at that point where they're fighting for market share, they're fighting against competition and they're fighting for differentiation and across the world, right? Not just in the US, not just in the EU. Um, so that's going to be a reality. Uh, I, so I, I guess if you're investing in this business, you're not doing so because they're, they're producing a lot of cash. They're not. But what I think when I look at where their growth is coming from, more than 60% of their sales coming from Europe, Middle East, and Africa. Um, and then the vast majority of their sales coming out of actually food retail establishment over food service. I think that says something about the fact that people associate with the Oatly brand. I do think that once people are frequent consumers of Oatly oat milk, they continue to come back time and time again which hopefully over the long-term gives them a bit of pricing power, gives them a bit of opportunity to expand their margins. And Really briefly, the one last thing I'll add, a little bit more technical, is how Oatly has been producing their oat milk, which has negatively impacted their financial performance. They simply don't have the facilities, the factories, to keep up with demand. Right now, they only have four factories, and only about a quarter of all of their sales last year were produced in these own factories. They're using uh, third-party manufacturers to keep up with demands in absence of being able to produce their own. So they're going through the process of expanding their factories, but that's a labor-intensive, time-intensive process. It was largely put on hold during the pandemic, so they're a bit backlogged right now. Hopefully, as they stop using third-party manufacturers, bring a lot of their productions in-house, that can also further help expand their margins in the future.
0: Yeah, so it's so interesting, Emily. This is the ask. <laughs> There's <laughs> always an ask in a prospectus. What is the ask here? The ask is for you, investor, to buy these shares so they can bulk up that balance sheet and expand capacity. I'm fascinated if you look at how a dollar is used, you know, part of it hits the income statement, part of it hits the balance sheet. So, in the, the use of, of one dollar for this company, research and development expenses. About 2% less than 2% in in the most uh, recently concluded year and that's a function of those couple of decades of r&d that have already come through the life cycle of expenses and investment of this company so you have a lot of firepower for every dollar of r&d now because you're just refining something that is already developed and it's been developed over a long period of time so this is An advantage over potential competitors, it's an easy avenue towards product expansion. It means that the biggest part of those dollars that are going to be be spent will be in in capital investment and marketing. (laughs) They already, you know, it's clear from their financial statements. As you you pointed out, they're already seeing some operating leverage. But selling general and administrative expenses or overhead was roughly 40% of revenue last year, and that number is going to probably stay at that really elevated level. Marketing expenses may increase, but those are going to be the two places this company puts its money. Um, and I think about Beyond Meat, and I see a, a parallel here. This is another high quality company that is offering an alternative to a traditional, um, a traditional commodity that we consume. Meet and spending a lot of money to build out capacity. And Emily, I mean, part of that capacity is being built in China. So, again, you know, it depends on what you think of uh, Tony Peterson. Don't judge him by only by his um, Oh, wow, no cow commercial. I urge everyone to go find this, Google it up on YouTube Oh, wow, no cow. Um, you'll see the CEO giving his um, very well thought out. Um, analysis of why you should buy his product. <laughs> if you believe in the places the company has already put its capacity and where it's landed on the ground, I don't know, there is something here where you could visualize an eventual path to profitability. I really love that the R&D line is, is not going to be a huge expense on the income statement. They've already put the money into that. Now they're extracting uh, revenue and cash flows from that.
1: Well, let's hope they take some of the money from the IPO and put it towards internal controls because add this business to the list of virtually every new business we talk about on this show that does not seem to be able to get uh, their internal controls in check before going public. Uh, This business, as always, had material weaknesses and virtually every segment of its business, technology issues, no documented procedure for controls, which is just Comical. Um, inadequate segregation of duties. These are just a few of the many aspects that regulators are probably going to have issue with uh, with this business that investors should be aware of before deciding to buy shares when this company does go public. So beyond material weaknesses, which are always a, a key risk for me as an investor, what stands out to you, Asset, as a risk with Oatly?
0: I think for me, maybe it's the competition uh, that's going gr- to only grow globally. I mean, just in the U.S., we've already mentioned Chobani, we've mentioned Califia Farms, Pacific Foods, and and that isn't even to uh, talk about a number of smaller players in regional markets. So I may have said this before on industry focus, but I'm just I'm fascinated by grocery stores. I used to spend a lot of my time um, as a writer at fool.com thinking about the different grocery chains and spent most of my time free time. It felt like when we, when our kids were young, running from grocery store to grocery store, where I live is um, probably ground zero on the Atlantic coast for different food chains, grocery chains that are coming from both Florida and New York, plus the European invaders like Lidl and Aldi. and Then you have uh, small companies, which are offering products that are picked up by Whole Foods by their regional buyers, and i 've seen a trend where you have a product that seems novel at the time, like a, a meat alternative or a um, alternative to, to cow's milk, you will see the leader that has developed its product with a specialized in this case you know it 's an enzymatic um, process. You'll see that supplanted a little bit on your local grocery shelf by a really cool funky small brand that doesn't use a very sophisticated product but selling the same thing oat milk. And I think I've already got one semi-local brand that I've seen in my local Whole Foods. So I worry too just about the ubiquity of challengers to almond milk in the US because let's face it we we know that this company already has great penetration in Europe. I give them uh plaudits for being so into China, but you have to have growth in the u s to compete on a global basis. This is still a huge, huge market that every company that is in the alternative plants or alternative meat sphere has to play in so i 'm a little concerned that they haven't captured as much market share as I thought they might have you 've given me a lot to think about today that um when we when we think about the reasons, and I'll add in again, my thought that maybe there's a, a incorrect price assumption by consumers, but I think that's sort of a risk to growth here, which is a crucial part of their puzzle. Emily, correct me if I'm not mistaken, but they want to build some compa- some more capacity out here in the U.S. Is that correct?
1: Yes, they're in the process, I believe, of adding in another, at least one more factory in the U.S. to to meet demand.
0: Yeah, so that would be mine. What what about you? What comes to mind when you're thinking about? risks that you're paying attention to here?
1: I I think you're spot on with your risks. I'll add two more additional ones. One is they have this great relationship with Starbucks. And I think that builds up a lot of brand awareness and kind of like, oh, if Starbucks uses it, then when I make my lattes at home or when I make my almond milk products at home, I should use Oatly too. And there's no contractual relationship with Starbucks that they have to use Oatly oat milk products. They choose to right now, but they could change their minds regarding their oat milk supplier anytime they want. So I think that could be a key risk. I would also add that I think the core consumer, at least as they've outlined it in their F1, are people who are younger, maybe a bit more environmentally or socially conscious consumers, people who are actively, maybe not necessarily... Choosing oat milk because it tastes better than regular milk or because they're lactose intolerant, but because they think they're making the better social and environmental and health choice for themselves in the world. I think there's some risk with the investors in the leadership at Oatly that could change that perception in the minds of consumers. They have investors like Blackstone and a lot of relationships with Chinese investors and suppliers as well as they expanded into China, right? They have these kind of uh, uh, mutual relationships, some investors that are sitting on their board of Oatly. I think there's there's definitely kind of social risk involved with the ownership structure that Oatly has outlined. Um, a lot of their leadership and and Mainly their directors on their boards that Oatly outlines as independent directors have significant stakes in, in Oatly's investors. So they're not quite independent. And I think those things in general, if they aren't able to keep this fun, Tony Peterson singing about cows in a, in a field, right? Like that's the atmosphere. That's the marketing angle they've run with. I think if people take a second and look, okay, wait, Blackstone's an investor. All of these Chinese suppliers are an investor. Like, do, is this a business that I really want to support? I think that is probably going to be a, a more long term challenge for them, maintaining that image.
0: Yeah. And it, it isn't just a, an image uh, issue. It's also, I think, an issue of influence as well. So, Blackstone, as you mentioned, being one of the largest asset managers in the world. So, th- these companies tend to have. Some sway in decision making with boards uh, if they get agitated with the direction a company is going in so so there is that um cue to the risk as well um but any any others that you want to talk about or, or then we can we can move on to to reveal what we think about this company as an investment
1: i i say let's let's talk about what we think about this business as an investment I can't say that i I know where you're gonna land on this one Asset. i I think you've done a good job of keeping your, your hand concealed.
0: Yeah. So, okay. So, here it goes. I am I'm compelled by the company's branding power. I think that they really have their grip on an aesthetic that appeals to a younger consumer. Um, and unfortunately, we can't present you the F1 here, but I encourage you to look at the F1 if you get a chance. Um, there's sort of a Rorschach test. Of their images, when you scroll past the boilerplate of the first page, you just get a series of images, and I've scrolled through those very slowly, Emily, because I wanted to understand why they have uh, this pull in the market. And I sort of get it after seeing the way they presented um, the, their billboards, these composed shots I was talking about. I've, and I'm and I'm paying attention to brand power more and more. But for me, I think there may be other more compelling investments in this space. I've mentioned Beyond Meat a couple of times, Impossible Foods may go public uh, soon. They probably are onto a bigger market with less impediments to growth. I do like the intellectual property aspect of this story. I do like the global aspect of this story. But for me, it would be a wait and see on how this CapEx um, originates over the next couple of years. Because at the end of the day, you're making one to two-year to two invest to build capacity. And I want to make sure that that demand is going to be there. So so I surprised myself because when I started reading through the F1, I was very, very interested and thinking, okay, maybe this is we're onto something here. It was was just a a consumer brand I knew about and I had no idea until you, 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 you slacked me, Emily, and said, hey, let's take a look. Oatly has an F1 that they have hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue. You have to pay attention to that. At the same time, I feel like it's not my first choice when I look at this whole big picture of where you can invest in alternative plant or alternative meat stories. So I like it, but it just did not generate my level of interest that I felt like I want to buy this when it comes out or even that I I, I may want to buy it after a couple of quarters. This is going to be a one-to-two-year watch list stock for me, but now talk me out of that. (laughs)
1: I actually completely agree with your opinion. Uh, so I wish I could talk you out of it, but I'm actually going to reiterate everything you just said. In my opinion, I think my concern comes down with the demand for milk alternatives. Not that the demand isn't there. It clearly is there. You know, just the excitement around the different like coconut milks, almond milks, oat milks, cashew milk, macadamia milk. I mean, the demand is there, but even with all of those things together, uh, even the most aggressive kind of projections for the alternative meat market globally is only reaching and say around 20 billion in 2024. It's a small market, um, right now and that can change in the future. And I, I don't want to dismiss that, but I don't have any sense about what Oatly's valuation is going to be coming out the door. If it's anything like beyond meat maybe this will be completely crazy and that could probably turn me off as an investor. So no, without having any pricing information, not getting any sense about the size of the business as it's going to be deemed valuable by the market, I I tend to think that this is one I'll probably sit back and wait on. I want to see that 20 billion number start to climb. I want to see the projections start to grow exponentially the way that they did for say like electric vehicles, right? The projections for electric vehicles grossly underestimated the actual growth trend. That's sort of trends that I, I want to see eventually happen for alternative milk. Until I start to see that curve start to turn, I'm probably going to be sitting on the sidelines.
0: All right. So we have a decision. We're not going to forget about Oatly, but we're going to keep buying the product, not the stock as, as yet.
1: <laughs> sounds good. This sounds like there's a lot of research I'm going to have to be doing here on Oatly, which is going to involve me spending a lot of money on oat products.
0: Yes, you you and my wife. So uh, maybe that will figure into their income statement over the next few quarters.
1: <laughs> well, Asit, as always, thank you so much for joining me and chatting today.
0: Great fun, Emily. Thanks so much.
1: Listeners, that does it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or just want to reach out to say hi, feel free to shoot us an email at industryfocus at fool.com or tweet at us at MF Industry Focus. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Molly Fool may have formal recommendations for or against any stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for his work behind the screen today. For Asit Sharma, I'm Emily Flippin. Thanks for listening and Fool on!